He is risen, brothers and sisters. He is risen indeed. Good morning to you on this Resurrection Sunday. I pray that this Lord's Day has already filled your heart with hope. And I pray also that our time together in God's Word now will deepen that hope. There are no words more glorious than these words. He is risen. Praise God. As is our practice on Resurrection Sunday, we're going to break from our series in the Gospel of Luke to consider a text of Scripture that helps us focus particularly on the resurrection of our Lord. Remember, every Sunday is the Lord's Day, which means we celebrate the resurrection every week as a church, but it is good to set aside this particular Lord's Day to simply and clearly gaze at the wonder of Christ's empty tomb. Today we will do that by looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to that passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. This is a wonderfully rich text, and I'm excited to consider it with you this morning. So would you follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as we read? This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of our Lord given to us for our good. Would you pray with me now? Father, we do come together with glad hearts to celebrate the truth that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and reigning now on high at Your right hand. God, give us grace to reflect upon our hope in Christ from this text in 1 Peter. Please encourage us, God. Please hold us fast through Your Word. Please keep me from error, and please give your people discernment, God, we pray, as we consider your word now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's safe to say that this is an Easter Sunday unlike any we have ever experienced. I told Laura, I believe this is the first Easter Sunday in my life that I haven't been together somewhere with a church family. It's disappointing, friends, that Resurrection Sunday falls during the midst of a pandemic. In in fact, I read a number of news stories uh, this week all expressing that common sentiment, how unfortunate it is that Easter Sunday 2020 falls where it does. And we feel that this morning, don't we? We would much rather be together, but church services have been canceled Easter celebrations have been postponed while families and friends cannot gather together for what is surely one of the high points of the entire spring, Easter Sunday. It's disappointing. It's unfortunate, as a number of stories expressed this week. And yet, there is something missing in that common sentiment. There is a sense in which this is not unfortunate at all. 
you could say that Resurrection Sunday 2020 falls at precisely the best and most needed time. Instead of calling it unfortunate, brothers and sisters, we should call this providential. Let me explain what I mean. What we celebrate this morning is the resurrection of the Son of God. How early in the morning, on the third day, Jesus' stone-cold heart suddenly began beating again. The blood rushed through His once lifeless veins. Breath filled His lungs that were deathly still just a moment before. And in an instant, in one glorious instant, the Son of God took back up His life and walked out of the grave, crushing death under every step. And at that death-destroying moment some 2,000 years ago when Jesus of Nazareth walked out of the tomb, at that moment, the making of all things new began. The mending of all brokenness broke free from sin's deadly grip. The restoration of God's creation dawned in this fallen world. Remember, that's what Jesus' resurrection signals, friends. His resurrection is the first ray of the new creation's sun breaking into the night of sin's darkness. Death will not win. Sin will be defeated. Satan will be vanquished. And for all eternity, God will look upon His people and upon His new creation and God will say, behold, it is very good. All of that, brothers and sisters, is what we're celebrating this morning. The Son of God is not dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And in that sense, Easter Sunday 2020 falls right where it ought to be. Of all the things we could hear this morning, this truth, the truth, dispels our fear, strengthens our faith, and renews our hope. This truth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, conquers everything both sin and pandemics. Are we sad that we cannot be together face to face? Absolutely. And we pray for a quick end to this ordeal. But even so, even so, brothers and sisters, how kind of God in the midst of a crisis to bring us to this particular day where we celebrate the truth that cannot be quarantined, the truth of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And so, to that end, friends, I have a very simple aim this morning. I'm a simple preacher. I have a very simple aim. I want to spend our time together reflecting on the hope that we have because of Jesus' resurrection. And in the New Testament, there is perhaps no better place to see this hope than our passage today, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter, you may remember, was written to suffering Christians. They were being persecuted. And their lives faced an uncertain future, at least from the world's perspective. But into that hardship and uncertainty, the Apostle Peter pens this letter. He writes to encourage these believers with the Gospel and to strengthen them for endurance. But most significantly, Peter writes to remind them of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. A hope that no persecution can take. You see, for the church... There is a hope that outlasts any suffering. There is a hope that endures any hardship. There is a hope that cannot be squashed. Of course, sometimes it's hard to see that hope in the midst of a crisis. But friends, that's why God has given us this letter. That's why the Holy Spirit 
prompted Peter to write as he did. This book is a divinely appointed reminder of the church's hope. A hope that can endure any trouble. And in this passage today that I want us to look at, Peter puts this hope immediately into view. The opening verses of of Peter's letter highlight God's action to give His people a hope and a future. In fact, Peter frames the entire letter in light of what God has done for His church. You, You can see this straight away in the passage, and we should note this before we go any further. So so just to frame the rest of the sermon and the rest of our time together, look again at verse 3 and notice how Peter begins with what God has done for the church. Verse 3, Peter writes, "...Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again." Friends, that is one of the clearest statements in Scripture, on God's action to save His people. As the church, our hope rests in the reality that God moved toward us. That God initiated new life in us. That God, not us, is the source of our salvation. What Peter describes here is the work of regeneration. Where God, by His mercy and grace, gives new life to those who are dead in their sins. This new birth is the same that Jesus speaks about in John chapter 3. And the Apostle Peter here tells us that this new birth is entirely and absolutely God's work. According to His mercy, God has caused us to be born again. But here's the key, friends, for understanding Peter's aim in writing. Peter begins with God in order to remind us where the church's hope is found. Not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, not in our resources, but in the God who has taken action for us. So so follow Peter's thinking for just a moment. Since God is the one who gave us life, our hope is that God will now sustain the life that He has given Since God took the initiative to save us, and God always finishes what He starts, then our hope is that God will certainly complete this work that He's begun. And He will save us to the uttermost. Do you see the pastoral purpose behind Peter's theology, friends? He starts where he does. He starts with this doctrine in order to help us see the encouragement we ought to have in the Gospel. The whole passage begins as it does. Verse 3 begins as it does because our hope begins with the God who is merciful and mighty to save. The God who has moved towards us. And that framework, friends, of God's action on our behalf, that framework brings us now to what we want to focus on this morning. Here's where I would like us to camp out for just a few moments together. Peter tells us that God has caused us to be born again, verse 3. But then Peter goes on to describe what this new birth results in for the Christian. More specifically, Peter says, the new birth that God gives brings to us three distinct encouragements for the church. 
And these encouragements are intended to strengthen us for whatever we face today. There's one from each verse in the passage. Three, four, and five. So on this Resurrection Sunday, let's do this together. Let's consider these encouragements that flow out of the new birth God has given us. The first encouragement is in verse 3. The church lives today in resurrection hope. The church lives today in resurrection hope. We just noted how God in His mercy has caused His people to be born again. But you'll note that Peter then immediately tells us what this new life provides to the Christian. Look at the next phrase, verse 3. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, Peter says. Friends, I know it's only one word, but that description of hope as living makes all the difference in the world. Hope is only good if it is fulfilled. A hope that goes unmet often produces greater disappointment. I'm sure many of us have experienced that very thing where something we hoped for went unfulfilled and in the end, we have this sense of disappointment that causes even our hope to fade. I'm sure many of us can relate to that. It may have been something silly or it may have been something significant. But the point remains that hope can sometimes be in vain. Sometimes hope comes up empty in the end. But here in verse 3, that's precisely what Peter says will not happen to the church of Jesus Christ. The hope we have received is a living hope. The idea here is something that is genuine and true. Rather than having an empty or a vain hope, the believer has received from God a hope that is vibrant, a hope that is sure, a hope that is alive. You see, this hope cannot fail. That is Peter's point. The Christian's hope cannot be stolen away. It's not a false hope that will only disappoint you in the end. When God caused His people to be born again, He brought them into a living, breathing, sure, stable, steady hope. Now at the most foundational level, friends, our living hope is the good news that God has made us alive. I don't want us to miss this fact. The church's living hope is most fundamentally our new life with God. Think about it for a moment and just recall with me the incredible mercy that God has shown us as believers. Before God gave us new life, we were without hope in the world. We were lost, dead in our sins, and therefore hopeless on our own. We could not give ourselves new life And tragically, we didn't even know that we needed new life. But God, being rich in mercy, gave us that life we could not earn on our own. Which means the living hope that Peter describes in verse 3 is most fundamentally life with God. Brothers and sisters, this is a hope that no one and nothing can ever take away from you. Nothing can undo God's salvation of your soul. No one can ever unjustify you in God's sight. No pandemic, no trial, no hardship can steal away this hope. 
Listen to me. You and I, brother and sister in Christ, live today with the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. In the most important, the most foundational sense, that is our living hope that we know and are known by the God who gives life. But even as I say that, friends, you may be asking yourself, how can that be true? Even as I say that, you may be asking yourself, how can we know for sure? Look, the reality is there are hardships and trials in this life that inflict harm on us. Christianity is honest. Suffering is real and at times really painful. So to put it very bluntly in the terms of our present day, the coronavirus kills both Christians and non-Christians. Suffering is real. So, if that is the reality of life in this fallen world, then how can we ever believe verse 3? How can we ever believe that we have a living hope? What makes us sure that this hope is truly genuine, certain, and alive? How can we know? Well, friends, look again at God's Word and notice the source of our living hope. Listen to Peter. He writes, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, Jesus' resurrection is the source of our living hope. And because Jesus lives, our hope is alive. Actually, we should say it this way. Because Jesus lives, we live. And in the life that Jesus shares with us, we have hope that lives. You see, our living hope here in verse 3 is ultimately resurrection hope. And that is our assurance, brothers and sisters. That's the answer to the at times real and really painful suffering of life in this world. This is our assurance. As surely as Jesus lives, so also will we live with Him and through Him both now and for eternity. Since nothing can put Jesus back in the grave, there is nothing that can stop God from finishing His saving work in our lives. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the difference that should make as we walk through life in this fallen world. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Think about the difference that makes. You might think that this means our lives will henceforth be nothing but successful and safe. Since Jesus conquered death, no harm and no disaster will overtake me. There are some folks out there who say things like that. That Jesus' resurrection promises Christians an unbroken life of success and health and ease. But friends, here's the problem with that line of thinking. Not only does it ignore the reality of life in this world, it also massively minimizes the power of Jesus' resurrection. Listen, Jesus' resurrection does not promise us an unbroken life of success and ease. No, our hope is much more powerful than that. Jesus' resurrection promises us that a life of hardship and difficulty will not break us 
in the end. Jesus' resurrection assures us that a life of suffering which will surely come will not rob us of our hope. You see, the, the, the power of the resurrection is not the promise of only good days. The power of the resurrection is that it gives hope for the bad, awful days. The days of failure and loss and pain and pandemic. The days where suffering piles on top of suffering and it seems our hearts will utterly crumble under the weight of hardship. The resurrection gives hope for those days, friends. That's the difference a living hope makes. It's not the hope or the promise of only good days. It's the hope of a power that will keep us even through the worst of days and will help us endure whatever hardship and whatever heartache may come. So I know, I know there are some in our church today who are hurting and enduring some level of hardship. I know that there are some of us who are afraid of what the future holds. Jobs are at risk. People are concerned about the health of their loved ones. And just overall, there is a feeling of unease like the floor underneath our feet is moving constantly. I know that's the reality facing us. And listen to me, brothers and sisters. God's answer to those days is not the glib response of a slogan or a cliché. No, God's answer is nothing less than the resurrection of the Son of God. Since Jesus lives, we will live with Him. Since Jesus lives, our hope is living and will endure whatever hardship we face. You see, it's greater than the promise of only good days. It's the promise of hope even on the worst of days. What God has given us is a living hope. A resurrection hope, friends. And in that hope, the church lives today, even when the times are difficult. As we continue into verse 4, we find that this resurrection hope that Peter has just described also tells us something about our future. This is the second encouragement for the church from verse 4. The church rests today in an unshakable future. The church rests today in an unshakable future. You can see it in the text. Verse 4, Peter shifts from describing the church's hope to speaking of the church's inheritance. What is the result of God causing His people to be born again? Well, the result is we have an inheritance from our Heavenly Father. When God gave us life and adopted us as His children, we became heirs with His Son, the Lord Jesus. We now stand to receive from the Father's estate. He's given us of His own riches. He's given us an inheritance with Christ. Now, that thought alone is rather astounding. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 4, with this stunning description of what our inheritance is like. You see, Peter wrote this letter thousands of years ago, but he understood what life is like in this world. Peter understood what so many people have experienced, that an earthly inheritance is a fragile thing. So Peter knows when he writes verse 4 and he says we have an inheritance, he knows that some people are going to be thinking, oh, but wait, 
Can't inheritances be lost? An inheritance is a fragile thing. An inheritance can be lost. Its value can crash. I mean, look, we only have to examine the events in our country over the last several weeks to recognize the instability of an earthly inheritance. Eight of the ten largest stock market drops in history have happened since February 24th of this year. That's staggering. What's more, the four largest percentage drops occurred in the span of a single week, March 9th through the 16th this year. I'm not a finance guy. So when I see those deeply red numbers, I think in human faces. That's someone's inheritance, isn't it? That's someone's retirement. Someone's college tuition. Someone's down payment on a home. All of that to say, we've seen firsthand just in the last few weeks how fragile an earthly inheritance can be. In a blink, it's gone. Gone. So listen again to how Peter describes the inheritance we've received as Christians. It's anything but fragile. Verse 4, God has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Friends, do you hear the security in those words? Imperishable. It cannot be corrupted. Undefiled. It is pure, pristine, and perfect. Unfading. It doesn't depreciate. It cannot lose its value. Brothers and sisters, that is the nature of our inheritance from God. It is perfectly secure. Its value is eternally fixed. Or to use the language of our day, our inheritance is immune from any stock market crash. In fact, there is no stock exchange in the kingdom of God. There is only a perfect inheritance from an Almighty Father who provides for His children eternally from the overflow of His own supreme riches. It cannot fade. Peter says. It comes from our Heavenly Father. And that's a good way to think about this inheritance, friends. Just in in our own day, an inheritance comes from a father to his children. And since our Father is the Lord of Heaven who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, our inheritance is rich beyond measure and it is impervious to corruption. To corrupt our inheritance, you would have to corrupt our Heavenly Father. And that can never happen imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That is the riches that God gives to His children. Still, Peter is not finished. I love this passage from the Bible. Peter's not finished. He adds one more description to the believer's inheritance. And after this point, there can be no doubt. Notice the last line of verse 4. Where is our inheritance now? It is kept in heaven for you. Friends, I cannot think of a more comforting thought for Christians sojourning through this fallen world. Nothing can steal our inheritance, for it is kept safe in heaven itself. In fact, to steal our inheritance, you would have to catch our Father napping or outwit His protection, and you would sooner keep the sun from rising than fool our Heavenly Father. No enemy and no circumstance can ever sneak into heaven and snatch our inheritance away from us. It is kept by God Himself, and God never sleeps nor slumbers. And so our inheritance is secure, awaiting the final day 
when we will come into the Father's presence and feast with Him on this inheritance. It is secure. It's kept in heaven itself, Peter says. And this means, brothers and sisters, that we can live today with a sense of freedom and confidence no matter what the day brings. We don't have to chase what this world offers. And we don't have to fret when things crumble. No, we've received our inheritance by grace. That inheritance is secure. And therefore, we will surely receive it from the Father on the last day. Listen, I don't mean to sound simplistic, but this truth, the truth of our heavenly inheritance, this truth really does free us from worry and anxiety. This truth encourages contentment. This truth sustains faithfulness when the fruit is slow in coming. Because my inheritance is secure, I am free to simply and radically spend my life loving God and loving my neighbor as myself. What a gift, brothers and sisters. And it's a gift we have received from the Father. So be encouraged, church. Be encouraged. What God has given you in Christ is secure to the end. And on that glorious last day, God will bring us into that inheritance for all eternity and we will dwell with God forever where nothing will ever steal or depreciate or devalue what God has done for us in Christ. That's the second encouragement. The church rests today. The church rests in her unshakable future. And so we come to verse 5. And a final encouragement for this Resurrection Sunday. The church trusts today in her ready Redeemer. The church trusts today in her ready Redeemer. Peter has just described how the believer's inheritance is guarded in heaven. But now Peter goes on to describe how the believer himself is also being protected. Notice verse 5. You, Peter says, who are being guarded by, uh, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you could say the Christians have a double level of protection. They are beneficiaries of a twofold security system. Our inheritance is protected in heaven by the power of God. And we are protected for that inheritance by that divine power of God. So the inheritance cannot be stolen and we cannot be stolen, Peter says. God is keeping our inheritance and God is keeping us. And notice the practical difference this makes in our daily lives, friends. Look again at verse 5 and ask yourself, how is God's protection worked out in my life? How is He protecting me? Well, it happens through faith, Peter says. Do you see it? Believers are being guarded by God's power through faith. You see, faith in Christ is the means through which God's protective power guards the Christian and keeps him for the final day. There is this mysterious and glorious cooperation between the believer and the power of God. It, it, it stretches our minds to understand how it works, but just, 
Try to, try to think through it with me. God grants us faith. He sustains that faith in His Word. And then through that faith which God gives and sustains, God supplies the power that protects us and keeps us for the final day. God is keeping us through the faith that He gives. His power is worked out as we believe. Faith in Christ, you see, is the very power of God working in the life of a Christian, keeping watch over His people. Brothers and sisters, this is why... I'm so glad that we came to this text on Easter Sunday. This is why week after week after week, the elders stand behind this pulpit and give you the same message which is continue trusting in Christ. This is why we make the call to faith a regular feature of our preaching. This is why when I walk around my neighborhood during the week and pray for each of you and your families by name, what I pray for first is that God would persevere you in the faith. We do those things because we believe from God's Word that faith in Christ is the power of God that keeps you to the end. Are you keeping yourself or is God keeping you? Yes, He's keeping you through faith. This is important to me. This is important for you to understand. Look, I've, I've heard people say before that calling Christians week after week to trust in Christ is not a very effective way to preach. It just gets redundant, I've heard people say. And while I agree that we need to explain what trusting in Christ looks like in different situations, to call such preaching redundant tragically misses the truth of Scripture and the power of God. Calling believers to continued faith in Christ is actually connecting them with the only power that can keep them and guard them to the end. Continued faith in Christ is the most necessary step we can take in every situation. We continue believing because we trust that God's power is at work in the very faith He allows us to express. That's how we should think about each day in the Christian life. God is guarding me today for the final day, and He's guarding me through faith in Jesus. Therefore, I believe. And I keep believing. And so, to encourage your faith on this Resurrection Sunday, friends, I want you to notice the character of God on display here in verse 5. I'm calling you to faith, and I want you to see the character of God that deserves your faith. Look again at verse 5. And notice how Peter describes our salvation as ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see it? It's ready. Now, in the context, the salvation Peter is talking about is the same thing as the inheritance in verse 4. Peter's talking about final salvation. The glory that we will experience and receive on the last day that will result in eternal life with God. That's the salvation ready to be revealed. But here's the question. Ready to be revealed by whom? Well, by God, of course. And note what God is like. Verse 5, God is ready, Peter says. He's ready to bring that salvation to pass. You see, brothers and sisters, we're not trusting in a God who may or may not come through in the end. We're not banking our hope on a God who keeps the final outcome in doubt 
just so that we stay on our toes. And we're not trusting in a God who may be caught sleeping one day and let some of us fall through the cracks. No, we trust a God who is ready to reveal and finish our final salvation in Christ. He is willing and He is able and He is ready to bring about what He has promised. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, we trust Him. And we trust Him with great confidence. With great confidence. God has given us new life. He has given us resurrection hope and an unshakable future. But most incredible of all, God has given us Himself. He has given us Himself. In Jesus Christ, we see the clearest evidence of God's readiness to redeem. How do you know that God is ready to meet you in the time of need? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. So how will He not also with that Son graciously give us everything that we need? And through Christ's death and resurrection, we know that nothing can derail our ready Redeemer. Having crushed death, God will, will not fail to keep us for a final salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. We trust today in a ready Redeemer. So as we close, what is the fruit of these encouragements from 1 Peter chapter 1? What is the grand takeaway, the, the rubber meets the road application of our resurrection hope, our unshakable future, and our sure salvation. What is the fruit? Well, it's found in the very first line of verse 3. Look again. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the fruit of these encouragements, the grand takeaway of these truths is the praise of God. That is the fitting and joyful response of Resurrection Sunday. The good news of the empty tomb fills our heart with hope and that, that hope overflows in mouths that are quick to praise and worship God. Let's end on that note, brothers and sisters. Let's end with our praiseworthy God. These are strange and trying days, to say the least. This is an Easter unlike any other we have experienced. And yet, the good news of Easter morning remains the same. The tomb is empty. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So let's go about our day with hearts that are hopeful and with lips that are quick to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank You, Father, that hope is a resurrection hope that allows us to rest today in an unshakable future and encourages our present trust in You, our ready Redeemer. Fill our hearts with praise today, God, we ask, to the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.